This is a Reconstructionist Radio audiobook recording. The Problem of Slavery in Christian America, an Ethical Judicial History of American Slavery and Racism by Dr. Joel McDermott. Narrated by Joe Salon. Copyright 2017. Published by American Vision. To purchase this book, go to AmericanVision.org. Part 1. A Judicial History of American Slavery. Chapter 1. The Colonial Foundations. The plantation of Jamestown was founded in 1607 as the earliest British colony in North America. Like most of the colonies, it was a financial investment chartered by the Crown. In this case, the Virginia Company of London and King James I. Such companies generally involved a land claim of the king granted to a select group of investors who would divvy the land, sell portions of it, use others, collect profits, and send regular fees and proceeds to the crown. They would found plantations and grow crops using the cheapest labor possible to maximize profit. The colony would grow raw materials, which they sold and shipped back to England to be used in various manufactures. Ships would later return laden with processed goods, some of which were sold to the colonists. As long as the crops produced, the arrangement was a lucrative endeavor for the crown and company men alike. At first, it appears that the company employed exclusively indentured servants. These were not lifetime slaves, nor were they African. Most accepted an indentured status for a certain number of years in exchange for the opportunity in the new world. Once they fulfilled their time, they went free, often seeking to obtain property and begin small plantations of their own. Two things coincided early in the colony's existence that spurred what would become American slavery. First was a tremendous boon in tobacco production. This was key. Without this, the demand for slaves would likely not have arisen as intensely as it did in Virginia. Second was the increased proficiency of the transatlantic slave trade involving Portuguese, Spanish, Dutch, French, and British slavers. The vast majority of slaves, 94%, were shipped to Brazil and the Caribbean. But when high demand for cheap labor arose in North American colonies, traders were more than happy to meet it there, too. The story of the tobacco boom begins with John Rolfe, one of the most prominent Jamestown settlers and later husband to Pocahontas. When Virginia's native tobacco varieties did not satisfy British palates, Rolfe endeavored to bring seed from favored strains in Trinidad for cultivation near Jamestown. His experiment succeeded. In 1614, just before his wedding, he shipped off in the Elizabeth, bound for London, with four barrels of the leaf he had grown in the past year. The vessel reached port, the barrels were entered into customs, and in July 1614, the fateful tobacco trade between the colony and England had its inception. The boom was on. The sweeter leaf was a hit, 
and the demand in England triggered feverish production in Jamestown. George Yardley, deputy governor of the colony in 1616, urged nearly unlimited planting of tobacco in Virginia that year. Soon visitors reported seeing the streets and all other spare places planted with tobacco. Exports increased seemingly exponentially afterwards, from 2,500 pounds that year to 18,839 the next, and 48,668 in 1618. By 1628, Virginia was piling over a half a million pounds per year on English docks. Within a short time, tobacco not only lined the streets and marketplaces, but took up a substantial place in the government, too. As we turn the pages of the journals of the House of Burgesses, or the Council of State, we perceive at once that principal business of these worthies is tobacco. This was for good reason. Money. Even while some authorities condemned ill effects from overplanting, the business was too good to slow down. In 1663, Sir William Berkeley condemned a trade rooted in, quote, the vices of men, end quote, but confessed, quote, the vicious, ruinous plant of tobacco I would not name, but that it brings more money to the crown than all the West Indian islands in America besides. Historian Philip Alexander Bruce called Rolf's triumph, quote, by far the most momentous fact in the history of Virginia in the 17th century, end quote. It was monumental in regard to the economic boom itself, but even more so regarding the slavery it would stimulate. The search for cheap labor for the demanding tobacco trade would set in motion bad things that could not lightly be undone. Creating American Slaves Had the American colonists held fast to the basic standards established in both biblical and British common law, the institutions of slavery they later developed would never have come to pass. But commerce was to triumph over principle. The colonists would seek out legal devices to circumvent the law of freedom and create a legal class of slaves that heretofore had not existed under British law. The first Africans arrived in Jamestown in 1619 during the initial years of this boom. It is not clear whether some of these early arrivals were considered lifetime slaves. Some certainly were not but 20 of them were dropped off. Planters were growing weary of the turnover with indentured servants. After their terms, they always went free. And the company had to recruit replacements back home. Worse, the former servants became a kind of rival to the planter elite as they went out in numbers and started small production farms of their own. While their farms were all certainly small initially, and thus no threat to wealthier established planters, collectively, they produced enough at least to annoy pricing. The big boys soon learned 
they needed a better solution for labor than one that required constant replacement via costly voyages and which also continually produced competition that could squeeze profits. Ideally, they needed a permanent labor supply that not only had minimum over, but would never threaten competition at all. They would find this in permanent slavery. For planters, slavery was preferable to indentured servitude because the latter created a host of freemen now looking to become planters themselves. This competition not only threatened the economic livelihood of the established planters, but eventually erupted in a type of class warfare between the establishment and poor whites, creating a class of lifetime slaves eliminated this problem. Despite the ever-present fear of slave uprisings, the slaves eventually proved less of a danger than the freed white servants. The planters, then just needed some clear justification for permanently enslaving the labor. Such justifications were not by any means certain for some time. Law relating to black laborers during the 1640s and 50s in some cases treated them as indentured, in some cases freed, and in others enslaved. John Punch, a black slave, was punished with lifetime slavery for running away. No European indentured servant ever suffered so harsh a penalty. Aside from the disparity, Punch's sentence shows nevertheless that he was not a permanent slave beforehand, and thus blacks were not universally relegated so at this point. In 1641, John Grawier, one of the original blacks in Jamestown, who as a freedman served as an officer of the court, successfully purchased the freedom of his son, who was born to a black slave woman. As late as the early 1670s, cases report indentured blacks who served their time and were freed. A transformation had begun, however, in 1659 and would become complete about eight years later. Subsidizing Slavery In 1659 to 1660, the House of Burgesses, something like our Congress, but elected only by landowners, enacted a law that recognized, quote, Negro slaves for the first time. It provided tax breaks to foreign cargo ships only if they first delivered such slaves when they arrived at Virginian ports. Such ships, mainly Dutch, received tariffs on tobacco reduced to the much lower rate of Britain's own. This subsidy for slaves probably marks the turning point at which permanently enslaved labor, a larger upfront expense after all, became more profitable than indentures. While legislation in Britain prevented this trade from transpiring for a few years, this did not make plantation owners happy. Both tobacco and sugar planters complained that it prevented them from getting the number of slaves they needed. When the desires of these planters finally prevailed, they planted the first feet of the peculiar institution in Virginia, simply by buying slaves instead of indentured servants. 
Thus, by 1660, it appears the composition of the labor force in colonial Virginia, previously made up of whites and blacks in various degrees of servitude, began to include in increasing numbers another category of laborers, blacks in lifetime bondage. The push for a direct subsidy of this nature reveals a desire on the part of at least some Virginians already this early. The same interest appears again in a 1664 letter from Maryland Governor Charles Calvert to England, desiring to import 100 to 200 Negroes every year. The governor expressed that we are naturally inclined to love Negroes if our purses would endure it. By 1674, it would be clear that pro-black slavery forces ruled the day. Two ships were scheduled to transport 650 African slaves to meet the tidewater demand in that year. Two more followed the next year, and a steady supply continued in the years after. Another principle active in subsidizing slavery was the principle of, quote, head right, end quote. This law, begun in 1618 in Virginia, provided additional allotments of land, usually 50 acres, for everyone who paid their passage to the colony. It also created a means for wealthier landowners to pay for the passage of others who would then become indentured servants while the owner received the 50 acres per head. As early as 1635, the law was said to apply also for the importation of each slave. Thus, for every slave a planter purchased, he would also accumulate the rights to an additional 50 acres of land. On this program, for example, the wealthy planter George Menifee obtained 6,000 acres in the space of two years alone, all secured by head rights, at least 1,900 of which came via purchase of 38 black slaves. By the 1670s, 400 slaves had been used to secure head rights in Virginia, meaning at least 20,000 acres, and the practice only grew until it was discontinued for black slaves in 1699. Expanding upon this same principle, South Carolina would offer even more intense subsidies. Beginning in 1670, the proprietors enticed Barbadian planters with 150 acres per male slave and 100 acres per female or boy under 16 years of age. The system was weighted towards black slaves rather than indentured servants, for servants were to receive 50 acres of the headright grant upon gaining freedom. When the total head right had been gradually reduced to 50 acres by 1682, no net subsidy remained at all for masters purchasing indentures. This loss was eliminated by purchasing black slaves instead. The master not only received the benefit of lifetime service, but lifetime enjoyment of the profits from the additional land. This practice further had a compounding effect. 
With every additional plot of land, the owner now had greater collateral to purchase more slaves. Planters quickly increased the practice of buying slaves on credit rather than cash. Dividing Whites and Blacks In 1661, the Virginia Burgesses began using law to drive a social wedge between black slaves and white indentured servants. The increasing importation of slaves ensured, naturally, also an increasing number who would run away. Many of these partnered with white servants in the endeavor. The act stated that any white caught in the company of a runaway black slave would be punished by serving additional time for that slave's master to compensate for the slave's lost time. If the slave had escaped or died, the white indentured servant would be liable for 4,500 pounds of tobacco, which acted as the currency at the time, or four years of service for, quote, every Negro soul lost or dead, end quote. Such a law had a chilling effect on whites aiding blacks in any such escape. It would drive whites to perceive company with blacks as a risk, if not a danger. In other words, not only did the law distinguish between servants and permanent slaves, official racism had entered the law for essentially the first time and thus could become both a widespread legal standard and social standard as well. The law helped divide European servants and African slaves, strengthened planter power, and more firmly attached the chains of lifetime bondage to Africans in the emerging system of slavery. Such changes were only a beginning. Chattel law for slaves. The changes intensified. When the Burgesses enacted two rules unprecedented in British common law, both designed to eliminate difficulties the law presented to maintaining the desired permanent slave labor supply. The first arose in 1662, when the growing population of black slaves was suddenly accompanied by a growing number of mixed race children. Under common law, the status of a child followed that of the father. Thus, the child of a free white male, whether the planter himself, a son, or a nearby freed white servant, and a black female slave would be free. The potential for a growing free mixed class troubled the Virginian elite in more than one way. Slave mothers would be raising free children, who would be considered as socially outcast as blacks and yet as economically troublesome as the freed white indentures. Even more problematic, as such children would obviously be born out of wedlock, they would legally be considered bastards. This created two more problems. First, by law, illegitimate children were a burden to the state. Second, it opened the fathers of these children to probing investigation and possible prosecution. Under existing law, the overseers of the poor were obligated to help raise and educate all illegitimate children. 
Furthermore, authorities were obligated to track down the fathers of all bastard children to make sure they supported them. Applying these rules to the mixed-race children of slave women would lead to huge social problems as masters and leaders of the community might be prosecuted for illicit and sometimes adulterous sex with their own slaves. From the planter's perspective, they could eradicate every single aspect of these problems with one single legal maneuver. Jump from English common law to Roman civil law concepts. While such a leap was absolutely forbidden on English soil, the crown ships and colonies were a different matter. The ships fell under the admiralty law, a Roman derivative, and colonial soil was left ambiguous. This ambiguity left room for one of the prime turns of tyranny in the story of American slavery and racism the imposition of the legal doctrine of partis sequitur ventrum, meaning, in this context, the offspring follows the womb, whereas before the status of the child would follow the father, it would now follow the mother. This move broke precedent in more than one way. Not only did it impose a Roman law standard in what should have been a common law land, it was also a law that was originally written and imposed upon livestock. If you are looking for the origins of the idea that American slavery was chattel slavery, ownership of individuals as opposed to a mere labor right, you can certainly see it in this foundational Virginian statute that bereft black slaves of common law rights of persons and imposed upon them the actual legal standard of chattel. Worse, the law entailed that some masters would be owners of their own sons merely because of the ethnicity of the mother rather than acknowledge their own son as a son the master would enslave them and own them thus racism had trumped even paternal affection by 1662 ironically throughout this time the status of black slaves did not hold the moment they set foot on actual English soil. Thus, the famous jurist William Blackstone would write later in 1769, the idea and practice of this political or civil liberty flourished in their highest vigor in these kingdoms where it fails little short of perfection and can only be lost or destroyed by the folly or demerits of its owner. The legislature, and of course the laws of England, being adapted to the preservation of this inestimable bluffing, even in the meanest subject, very different from the modern constitutions of other states, on the continent of Europe, and from the genius of the impartial law, which in general are calculated to vest an arbitrary and despotic power of controlling the actions of the subject in the prince 
or in a few grandees. And in this spirit of liberty is so deeply implanted in our Constitution and rooted even in our very soil that a slave or a Negro, the moment he lands in England, falls under the protection of the laws and with regard to all natural rights, becomes eo instanti at that instant a free man. While boasting of such free institutions and a spirit of liberty in its homeland, however, England nevertheless maintained the slave trade with the subterfuge of the Roman law of admiralty aboard ships and in the colonies. A slave ship could be docked at Liverpool, but as long as the Africans remained chained on board, unable to disembark onto the land, they were legally cargo chattel, things, and thus slaves. Could one simply manage his way onto the dock? Common law would take over and he or she could claim freedom under the legal theory Blackstone described. Thus, the great hypocrisy inherent in British law, the boast of freedom in these kingdoms, on the one hand, could be taken away by Roman law institutions in the other. Thus, while slavery hardly existed on British soil, England dominated the slave trade and profited greatly from it until William Wilberforce oversaw its termination in 1807. In the 1660s, the Roman and chattel standard proved convenient to planters and the whole slave-based system of commerce alike. Locally, it had the following effects. Any children resulting from such encounters would be slaves, belonging to the owner of the mother. Thus, the local authorities do not need to institute bastardly proceedings against the father because society would not be required to maintain or support the illegitimate child. Maintenance would be the responsibility of the owner of the mother who would benefit from the birth of a new slave. As with most tyrannies, a drastic and ad hoc change of law would bring about further unintended consequences. When subsequent statutes prohibited blacks from testifying against whites, the entire issue was taken out of the legal culture. There could never be bastardly proceedings or any rape prosecutions involving slave women because they could never be a complaining witness. There would only be more slaves, albeit mulatto slaves. In this case, planters may not have considered the unintended consequences adverse to themselves, but to slave women and to a lesser extent blacks in general, suffered greater vulnerability. The deprivation of rights and status for black women and their offspring meant almost the total elimination of any accountability for white rapists. This law left slave women vulnerable to all white men because the law simply would not take notice of sexual activity that resulted in mixed race children of slave women. Masters had free sexual access to their slaves without legal sanction. 
non-slave owners could, in theory, face a trespass suit from a master of a slave woman for having sex with her, but no such lawsuits appear to have been filed. White men, especially masters and their sons, could then quite easily prey upon black women without fear of legal consequences. And what few laws would have provided consequences for some cases were rarely, if ever, enforced. These factors will come into play later when we consider pro-slavery apologetics in the antebellum era. The Christian Faith Denuded There was yet another door, however, through which blacks could find reprieve from the developing slave trap, and the planters moved almost as quickly to close it too. This door was the Christian faith. Among the earliest justifications for holding Africans in slavery was that they were not Christian, but heathen. Even in free England, this justification would hold up in the courts. Under the common law, however, conversion to Christianity would break this status. Thus, there arose a tension between the gospel and the plantation. So when Charles II instructed the Council for Foreign Plantations in 1660 to consider how much of the natives or such as are purchased by you from other parts to be servants or slaves may be best invited into the Christian faith and be made capable of being baptized thereunto. Americans' planters grew uneasy. The greatest opposition came from masters, for whom slave profits, not slave salvation, was priority. Up until this point, during the phase in which the status of blacks was still largely in question, several had sued for their freedom and won. A famous case comes in the person of Elizabeth Key Grinstead, the child of a white planter and a black mother. Elizabeth ended up the subject of a lawsuit over claims to her service, and while she had claimed to being a mere indenture, the court decided in 1655 that she was the child of a black mother, she was a slave, and was property of the, the estate left by her last master. She appealed the decision, and upon retrial was considered free on common law grounds that her father was free. The 1662 law had not yet been passed, and that she had been baptized as a Christian. While it seems the first criteria was the most important in this case, her Christianity was not unimportant, for in previous cases, there is some evidence that black Christians could testify against whites and sue in court. A free black Christian man was able to purchase his illegitimate child with a black slave because he promised to raise that child as a Christian. More importantly, there is some evidence that black Christians could not be held in servitude for life. The reaction to this particular case may have been the act of 1662, but the reaction to the fear of freedom upon baptism came in 1667, and it was predictable, if saddening, the denial. 
the act declaring that the baptism of slaves doth not exempt them from bondage did just that. Whereas some doubts have arisen whether children that are slaves by birth and by the charity and piety of their owners made partakers of the blessed sacrament of baptism should by virtue of their baptism be made free. It is enacted that the conferring of baptism doth not alter the condition of the person as to his bondage or freedom. That diverse masters freed from this doubt may more carefully endeavor the propagation of Christianity by permitting slaves to be admitted to that sacrament. Notice how the bill slyly placated the churchmen by masquerading as an incentive that masters may more carefully endeavor the propagation of Christianity. Maryland did the same thing in 1671, but more candidly declared that they intended the measure for, quote, encouraging the importation of Negroes and slaves into this province, end quote. As we shall see later, not only was the Christian faith denuded of any ability to free slaves, and was simultaneously employed as a means of maintaining the opposition of blacks, along with the earliest instances of evangelism as a justification for slavery came the preaching of the slaves' necessary subjection and optimal submissive obedience as the goal of Christian practice for them. Thus, conversion would help fasten the chains of bondage as generations of ministers taught slaves that obedience to their masters was the equivalence of obedience to God. And the keys to heaven began with proper deference to their earthly status. They perverted the greatest means of liberation and freedom in human history into one of the greatest bludgeons of oppression, either by sea or land. Whereas the Acts of 1662 and 1667 all had but guaranteed a permanent and property status to black slaves, there actually remained a small loophole. As small as it may have been, however, authorities moved to close it. An issue arose from a 1670 act passed to clarify the status of Indians captured in war by other nations. French and Spanish colonization efforts led to wars with Indians, and this resulted in enslaved Indians. The nations, in turn, may sell the enslaved to English colonists, but could be held permanently or only temporarily. The act declared that they shall serve, if boys or girls, until 30 years of age, if men or women 12 years and no longer, but made the clumsy distinction that these servants were such as shall come by land. In addition to this, it said that all servants not being Christians imported into this colony by shipping shall be slaves for their lives. This presumably intended to distinguish black slaves 
usually imported by ship from captured Indians, which arrived by land. The problem was that black slavery was developing in neighboring colonies as well. An increasing number of blacks would be entering the colony by land as well. If these had been previously baptized, then their status under Virginia law would allow them to sue for their freedom. So in 1682, a law was passed specifically to repeal the 1670 Act and replace it with tighter regulation. It would now declare all servants brought or imported into this country, either by sea or land, whether Negroes, Moors, Mulattoes, or Indians, who and whose parentage and native country are not Christian at the time of their first purchase of such servant by some Christian to be slaves. The new act was specifically declared to exist for the benefit of the master's pocketbooks. For if they should either have to return to another territory to sell the slave before he gained freedom or else to depart from their just right title to such slave, it would be to the great loss and damage of such master and owner, and to no advantage at all to the planter and buyer. In addition, the Burgesses showed that they did not mind permanently enslaving the Indians after all, and justified this change because Indians caught in war and returning to their own tribes were subjected to slavery anyway for having been caught in war. Making such an alteration from the 1670 Act was a small price to pay for ensuring that all blacks coming by sea or by land would remain permanent slaves. That Virginia worked at this time to encourage the proliferation of slavery in the colony was clear. It declared to counteract the great discouragement of bringing in such slaves for the future. With this last stroke, the status of Africans was also made clear. The precedent was set for the coming decades. Any African brought to Virginia was presumably a slave, even if baptized. That would also apply to blacks born in Christian colonies in the New World because their parentage was African. Whether the law treated them as people or property or a mixture of both was unsettled only marginally, but their status as slaves was now clear. Runaways resistance, and racism. Along with organized rebellion, which we will cover in the next chapter, the more dreaded forms of slave resistance included running away and the various degrees of individual physical resistance. These provoked legislation from very early on. As early as 1640, cases of runaway slaves came before Virginia courts. The case, including John Punch, mentioned earlier, showed racial disparity already at that early time. The case actually involved three runaway servants, two whites and one black, John. While the two white servants were whipped and given an additional four years of service, John was sentenced to lifetime slavery. 
Recurring cases led the assembly to pass laws in 1643, regularizing punishment. To compensate masters for lost time and money, runaways once caught would receive double the time they missed added to their indenture. Upon second offense, they would receive a letter R branded upon their cheek. If upon any offense the runaway happened to allow a firearm or ammunition to come into the possession of an Indian, he would be liable for the death penalty. We have already seen the 1661 law passed to drive a wedge between white servants and blacks. In 1663, the Burgesses highlighted a prohibition on unlawful meeting of servants and prohibited servants from leaving their plantations at all without a license from their master. In 1669, the assembly addressed the nagging problem with greater ardor, confessing that previous attempts have hitherunto in great part proved ineffectual. The new act provided large rewards to apprehend runaways. The reward was deemed too burdensome to the public purse only a year later, and reduced the branding of the cheek was also reduced to a close cropping of the hair. Nevertheless, punishments were intensified. The law directed the local constable in the area in which a runaway was caught to whip them severely then convey them to the next constable along the way home, who is to give him the light correction, and so every constable through whose precincts he passeth. This meant that the farther a slave succeeded in escaping, the greater beating he risked if he was caught. Given that 39 lashes was a standard starting point for whippings, a runaway slave could easily end up receiving hundreds of stripes before delivery back to his master. Slaves who sought freedom in Virginia faced the threat of violence and death at every turn. In the 1669 law, the assembly made allowance for the casual killing of slaves. The state would acquit any master or anyone acting on behalf of a master if any slave resist and by the extremity of the correction should chance to die. The law codified the presumption that no master would purposefully destroy his own property and thus no such casual killing could involve malice aforethought. As later developments will make clear, however, such malice did indeed exist in many cases, especially in cases of regularly resisting or incorrigible slaves. Such a law simply created the moral hazard of a legal path to murder for whites over blacks. A master fed up with a particular slave, could purposefully correct a slave to such extremity that by chance died, and there would simply be no recourse for such actions. This would especially be true later when the courts would solidify the rule that blacks could not testify against whites in a court of law.
At that point, a master could literally beat a slave to death in front of an entire body of other slaves and get away with it. While the laws passed up into the 1670s had progressed enough to guarantee permanent slavery for blacks, there were still several outstanding matters. Apparently, in reaction to the continuing embarrassment of a growing mixed population, Virginia passed a law in 1691 penalizing any white woman who would give birth to a bastard child by a Negro. She would be fined 15 pounds, about two and a half years wages for a free farm laborer, and sold into indentured servitude for five years. The government split the revenue from the fine three ways between itself. The local church parish and the informer heavily incentivizing nosiness and invasion of privacy. The child would be held as an indenture until 30 years old. Under the same statute, any white male or female actually marrying a black, mixed, or Indian, bond or free, would within three months be banished from this dominion forever. Yet this statute added nothing in regard to white men's relations with black women without marriage or for black women who bore mixed babies. With the Pardis rule still in force from 1662, there was no probability of adding mixed children to the free population in those cases. While we should not diminish any cultural stigma, particularly from the church's perspective, upon fornication in general, the laws clearly intended to protect against misogynation in the free population rather than guarding sexual mores in general. White males still had tremendous license and black females were still especially vulnerable. The 1691 legislature also extended the casual killing principle to apply to runaways and absentee slaves. The act for suppressing Outlying slaves additionally empowered sheriffs, officials, and members of search parties in case any Negroes, mulattoes, or other slave or slaves lying out as aforesaid shall resist, run away, or refuse to deliver and surrender him or themselves. It shall and may be lawful for such person and persons to kill and destroy such Negroes, mulattoes, and other slave or slaves by gun or any other ways whatsoever. In addition, the master's property was insured. Should such a slave be killed according to this act, the master would be compensated out of public funds for his loss. The same 1691 statute included the first prohibition against increasing the number of free blacks in the colony. If any master manumitted a black or mulatto slave, the law now required him at his own cost to deport that newly freed slave out of the colony. 
This decree had two major implications. First, it created a financial incentive to maintain all blacks as slaves. Only masters with significant capital could afford to free any of their slaves, and even these would now be discouraged from doing so. Poorer planters, who owned a few slaves, would have little, if any, choice. Second, it revealed overt racism. Blacks had only one function in Virginian society, and that was to labor perpetually for the benefit of their owners. Otherwise, free blacks were viewed as undesirable elements in the population. Slavery and the North Permanent slavery reached nowhere near the level in New England that it did in the Middle and Southern colonies, mainly due to the general absence of large cash crops and thus of the need for agricultural labor. But this difference is illusory in more than one way. First, it may lead some to assume racism did not exist as widely or strongly in the North. Coupled with the fact that the northern colonies, eventually states, more readily abolished their institution of slavery after the revolution. It is easy to assume greater openness to blacks in general in those states. This hardly was the case. We will chronicle later the extreme hostility toward free blacks in the north. For now, it will be enough to see the foundations of racial slavery and the slave trade founded there. Second, the lower prevalence of slavery in the New England colonies may mean there was less demand for slave labor in general, but this in no way means that there was not fairly intense demand in relevant areas from key individuals. Some of the wealthy elite held the same vision for Massachusetts as developed in Virginia, a large slave-powered economy adorned by the large plantation of the elites. As we will see with Edward Downing's comments below, these planters saw black slave labor as vital in New England, and as we will cover later, Perhaps the earliest attempt at forcible slave breeding occurred in Boston upon the design of Samuel Maverick, who at one point owned 1,000 acres. Had the northern soils and climate lent themselves to the widespread production of tobacco, rice, etc., as occurred in the South, this type of demand would have produced the same results. Third, so often overlooked is the North's most egregious and longest-lasting contribution to slavery, her intense involvement in the slave trade. During most of the 17th century, a fierce international struggle was raging on the West Coast trying to corner the markets that supplied slaves for the New World. While other small and independent traders were being virtually eliminated, their small size making them easy prey for all sides, the Bay Colony merchants survived and even prospered. In 1676, Massachusetts slavers carried slaves from Madagascar to the West Indies. 
a mere two years later, they were among the suppliers of Virginia as well. In fact, all of the supply to the southern colonies arrived on ships originating from Europe, Britain, the Caribbean, or the northern colonies. So while American slavery is so often viewed as a southern problem ended by northern agitation and eventually aggression, this is hardly the case. Many northern elites got filthy rich delivering Africans to the south. Not only did this occur, but the forces behind it grew as powerful as they did rich later cooperating in Congress with the Southern colonies to keep slavery and the slave trade legal as long as possible. Even after Congress would outlaw the trade in 1808, some of these traders operated illicitly to keep the deliveries coming. These reasons individually, let alone taken together, demand that we at least give some attention to the role of the northern colonies in both racism and slavery in America. While the South spearheaded, perfected, and most rigorously enforced and abused the system, the North was every bit as complicit in principle. That it was not the same in degree was by mere happenstance. Thus, while the South will get the bulk of the detailed analysis here regarding the development of laws, etc., we cannot ignore the fact that the North did exactly the same things and that even while the Northern colonies later outlawed slavery, in every case an intense racial hatefulness overshadows the endeavor. Massachusetts the Puritan influence in Massachusetts would involve a substantial attempt to institute Old Testament law, and this would mean some treatment of servitude and slavery. Such acknowledgment came early. The colony's first legal code, the 1641 Body of Liberties, provided for a slavery in a way obviously influenced by biblical law, yet vague enough to allow for liberal adaptations. Section 91 on liberties of foreigners and strangers stated, There shall never be any bond slavery villainage or captivity among us unless it be lawful captives taken in just wars and such strangers as willingly sell themselves or are sold to us and these shall have all the liberties and christian usages which the law of god established in israel concerning such persons doth morally require this exempts none from servitude who shall be judged thereunto by authority. The same interpretation ascended in neighboring New Haven Colony and found expression in the life of the short-lived colony's first governor, Theophilus Eaton, who sometime before 1658 owned blacks who were servants forever or during his pleasure, according to Leviticus 25, 46.
and 46. Biblical law, however, as we have mentioned already, contains tight provision that if followed would have ended the vast majority of the slave trade and slavery in America. Early on, this code had enough preeminence in Massachusetts to check some abuses, but even here, in, in what was perhaps any civil government's most faithful attention to biblical judicial laws in Christian history, the authorities failed to apply it with much consistency. In a 1645 example, Richard Saltonstall petitioned the general court against a ship captain and mate who had obtained slaves via violent raids in Guinea, murdering some and kidnapping the others. The petition condemns the action according to the laws of God in this land and specifically notes that these offenses are capital by the word of God. The court sharply condemned the acts in which Negroes were fraudulently and injuriously taken and ordered them all returned, going so far as to track down one which had been sold and ordering the purchaser to return him. Yet aside from this fairly unprecedented response, the court provided no punishment, certainly not capital, for the captain, though held guilty of man-stealing by his own confession. Nevertheless, the following year, the court issued an order to effect the return of the Africans in question with a general proclamation against the heinous and crying sin of man-stealing in an effect to deter all others belonging to us to have to do in such a vile and most odious courses. As the devices of man so often have it, however, some had already begun finding a legal route around the man-stealing impediment, the guise of a just war. In 1645, Edward Downing wrote his brother-in-law, Governor Winthrop, expressing the desire for a just war with the Peacut so that he could trade captive Indians for black slaves on the transatlantic market. His comments show the outlook of the elite, at least if not others as well. The colony will never thrive until we get a stock of slaves sufficient to do all our business. Like the South, although perhaps a bit less rigorous, Massachusetts attended what slavery she did practice with strict slave codes. Much like Virginia, these grew up somewhat piecemeal in the mid to late 1600s, but moved directly toward degrading slaves to chattel as a central feature. While a 1646 law in Massachusetts taxed black slaves as persons under the standard poll tax, this did not last. Later revisions in 1692, 1696, and 1698 taxed them as personal property, betraying a legal shift in that colony that tracked Virginia's when she had moved from white indentured servants to black slaves. Granted, the full shift away from white indentures did not so starkly occur in the North, but the legal changes designed to keep blacks in subjection did.
Rhode Island. Although closely rivaled by Massachusetts, which had, by one account, the most vigorous slave traders in the New World, our smallest state, Rhode Island, was nevertheless the largest participant in the slave trade. In 2003, the state's own Brown University commissioned a committee to examine the university's historical connections to slavery and the slave trade. The resulting 107-page report displays tremendously candid and transparent soul-searching. The fruits of this reflection include a summary account of Rhode Island's role upon which it is hard to improve. Rhode Island's distinction lay not in slavery, but in the leading role that the colony and state played in the transatlantic slave trade. Though Rhode Islanders lagged behind their Massachusetts neighbors in entering the trade, they soon made up for their slow start. The first recorded transatlantic slaving voyages from the colony embarked in the early years of the 18th century. By the close of the trade, more than a century later, Rhode Islanders had mounted at least a thousand voyages, carrying over 100,000 Africans into New World slavery. While such totals are far smaller than those amassed by the Portuguese, British, Spanish, and French, they are extraordinarily high in the American context. In all, about 60% of slave trading voyages launched from North America, in some years more than 90% issued from tiny Rhode Island. As we shall see, nearly half of the Africans transported by Rhode Islanders were trafficked illegally by ships operating in defiance of a 1787 state law prohibiting residents of the state from trading in slaves, federal statutes of 1794 and 1800s barring Americans from carrying slaves to ports outside of the United States, and the 18 Congressional Act abolishing the transatlantic slave trade. A few Rhode Island families made substantial fortunes in the trade. William and Samuel Vernon, Newport merchants who would later earn a place in American history for their role in financing the creation of the United States Navy, sponsored more than 30 African slaving ventures. The DeWolfs of Bristol were the largest slave trading family in all of North America, mounting more than 80 transatlantic voyages, the vast majority of them in defiance of state and federal law. The primary destination for captives on DeWolf ships was Cuba, where the family owned its own sugar plantation. In the following chapters, we will see in a little more detail just how central a role these families played throughout the 18th and early 19th centuries. For now, it suffices to acknowledge this aspect of American slavery and the fact that it developed exclusively in the North. Plantation slavery, however, developed in Rhode Island as well. In fact, within its limited range, it nevertheless rivaled anything in Virginia in its nature. The southwestern part of the colony, known as Narragansett County, boasted such large plantations differing from those in the south only in the commodities grown. 
berries, sheep, and horses rather than tobacco and rice, and certainly worked only by extensive Negro and Indian slavery. Just as in the South also, slaves required an oppressive slave code. Just as in Massachusetts or Virginia, black slaves had curfews, needed permission tickets to travel off the plantation, could not assemble, could not engage in recreations involving dancing or gambling, certainly could not vote, and could be tried for crimes without a jury. New York. New York also paralleled Virginia in certain shifts. African slaves had arrived as early as 1626. In 1647, however, a board of audit for the struggling West India Company, which had held the monopoly on the colony and its trade, recommended a broad reform program that included increased reliance on slave labor. The board eyed easing the restriction on exporting only to adjacent British colonies as a path to their goal. We should consider it highly advantageous that a way be open to allow them to export their procedure even to Brazil and to trade it off there and to carry slaves back in return. This would meet the need in turnover and thus a shortage in white indentured servants. New Netherland would by slave labor be more extensively cultivated than it has hitherunto been because the agricultural laborers who are conveyed thither at great expense to the colonists sooner or later apply themselves to trade and neglect agriculture altogether. Slaves, on the other hand, being brought and maintained there at a cheap rate, various other descriptions of produce would be raised and by their abundance be reduced in price, so as to allow, when occasion would offer, of their advantageous exportation hither and to other parts of Europe. Demand seemed to concur with increasing shipments coming in the 1640s and 50s. By 1664, according to one account, New York held as many as 700 black slaves, not too distant from the number in burgeoning Virginia at the time. While the slave codes did not grow as onerous as in her southern cousins or even her New England neighbors, New York would nevertheless suffer from the same racial, economic, and social tensions. In fact, given some of the extreme tragedies we will see in the next chapter, New York suffered in relative disproportion from what slavery and racism she did practice. Broad social complicity. For the North, American slavery meant not so much the local institution in itself, but a whole range of broader dependencies, benefits, and implications. These could include the direct wealth of the transatlantic trading companies themselves, but also a myriad of jobs created the shipping business itself as well as all the exports shipped by that business. 
In addition, we must include the tax revenues generated by all such markets in any way influenced by slavery. We can thus read today that the streets of Newport were literally paved by revenues generated from a duty on slave imports. But there is so much more. Rhode Island was one corner of what contemporaries called the Triangle Trade, in which slave produced sugar and molasses from the Caribbean were carried to Rhode Island and distilled into rum, which was then carried to West Africa and exchanged for more captives to produce more sugar, more rum, and more slaves. In 1764, the year of Brown University's founding, Rhode Island boasted some 30 rum distilleries, including 72 in Newport alone. The real story of the Rhode Island slave trade is not of a few great fortunes, but of extremely broad patterns of participation and profit. Even with the inevitable gaps in the documentary record, it is possible to identify by name some 700 Rhode Islanders who owned or captained slave ships. The roster includes virtually every substantial merchant, as well as many ordinary shopkeepers and tradesmen many of whom purchase shares in slaving voyages, much as Americans today buy shares in corporations. Even those who did not invest directly in the trade often depended on it for their livelihoods. Boatwrights built ships, and blacksmiths and block makers fitted them out. Sail lofts and rope walkers prepared canvas and rigging. Caulkers scraped and sealed hulls. Carpenters built shelving below decks to hold the ship's human cargo. Distilleries churned out rum, sealed in barrels fashioned by coopers from local pine, oak, and iron. Factories and foundries produced whale oil, candles, cloth, and iron bars, all important trade goods on the West African coast. Farmers supplied beef, flour, tobacco, and onions. In the words of historian Rachel Chernos Lynn, the Rhode Island slave trade was literally the business of the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker. The textbook discussions of slavery today too often narrow the view to a few vignettes of cotton fields, ragged clothing, shackles, and the whip-scarred backs. Perhaps we also get the famous historical diagrams of slave ships packed shoulder to shoulder with as many black bodies as the captains of the logistics could muster. While all such lessons remain potent and vital, however, we neglect a far broader understanding that once obtained would command the same empathy in every area of life as far as it may go. Take just one example of the carpenter. Here was an average white skilled worker, one of dozens in the early days, hundreds later. To begin with, his trade was protected against competition from free blacks, let alone slaves. More to the point, however, consider the psychology of such a person as he may have gone to work one morning to fit out the slave decks of one of these ships. The job requires a set of plans for the overall ships, 
showing how many bodies the designer intends to carry. This would include a set of details for the dimensions of the compartments with minimal ventilation ports. This carpenter would look at such of a set of plans and nod in agreement. I can do that. Then conscious that he was about to build a trap in which his contractee would stuff hundreds of Africans who would excrete waste upon one another for weeks, barely able to breathe with barely enough space even to sit up, many of whom would die because of the passage and the very work of his hands got busily to work, measuring, cutting, fastening, he sanded the planks, drilled the holes in which to bolt down the shackles and tested the sturdiness of the whole works. Then he finished. He stood back with a sense of a job well done, nodded once again with pride in his work, and then received his fees. We could easily engage in such thought experiments for every conceivable profession and trade, in each case, however, we would have to add that should the man encounter any of the early abolitionists of the anti-slavery arguments, the culture and economy so deeply intertwined with slavery that he would have easily shrugged off pleas of religion and humanity with, I'm just doing my job. Or a variety of other commonplaces we still hear on issues of principle today. The picture grows more extreme once you learn that the classic transatlantic triangle trade only accounts for a small portion of the New England affair with slavery. They carried on an additional bilateral trade only with the Caribbean, where the slave colonies had consumed their entire economies to produce only sugar. They required outside produce for virtually everything else. New England rose to meet this demand. Rhode Island dominated this trade, operating in essence as the commissary of the Atlantic Plantation Complex. Rhode Island ships cleared for the Caribbean on an almost daily basis, their holds laden with a cornucopia of local products, beef and butter and hay and horses. Narragansett pacers were much prized by Caribbean planters, candles, shoes, iron, barrel loops and staves, timber, tar, tobacco, and vast quantities of salt cod, the staple protein source of West Indian slaves. The recent accounting of this trade rightly concludes, Between the transatlantic slave trade and the West Indian provisioning trade, it is hard to imagine any 18th century Rhode Islander whose livelihood was not entangled directly or indirectly with slavery. Conclusion In regard to both racism and slavery, the early colonial period up until the later 1600s exhibits one outstanding feature. One end, one theme. The total and perpetual enslavement of blacks. Toward this end, Virginians with Maryland, Delaware, and North Carolina copying only a few years behind enacted laws to substitute the importation of Africans, threaten white servants to separate themselves from blacks and to refuse them aid, 
apply the laws of chattel to all children born from African mothers, thereby ensuring all offspring of black mothers remain slaves and property. Expose black female slaves to sexual predation. Deny to blacks the freedom traditionally following conversion to Christianity and eventually ensuring that all blacks that entered the colony by any means would be considered slaves. And these laws only consider those that bore directly on the status of slaves. Others that pertain to the treatment and life of enslaved blacks we will discuss in the next chapter. And some of their deficiencies defy humanity even more greatly. Winthrop Jordan provides an ample summary of the development in this era. In the last quarter of the 17th century, the trend was to treat Negroes more like property and less like men, to send them to the fields at younger ages, to deny them automatic existence as inherent members of the community, to tighten the bonds on their civil and personal freedom, and correspondingly to loosen the traditional restraints on the master's freedom to deal with his human property as he saw fit. The end result was during the 1680s, planters switched from temporarily indentured white servants to imported Africans bound for life. By the 1690s, black slaves predominated over indentures and plantation inventories by two to one, the reverse of the ratio only two decades earlier. Virginians continued to import large numbers of slaves, into the following decades, even after the prices for indentured servants fell to match that of lifetime slaves. Thus, by about 1700, the slave ships began spilling forth their black cargoes in greater and greater numbers. By that time, racial slavery and the necessary police powers had been written into law. Nor were these phenomena confined to the southern colonies. New England established the same patterns largely and in many cases wholly in terms of demand for African slave labor, racial animosity, slave codes, and an incompatible involvement in the slave trade not even found in the South at all. While not developing a slave society to the same degree as the South, both the similarities in principle and the distinctive trading economy in the North reveal the issue to be not just a Southern, but a national sin. The transition from a relatively brief period of white servitude to a long legacy of black slavery by the end of this period was virtually complete. But this was only a beginning. The decades that followed would employ established precedents to rack up case after case of cruelty and abuse and expand the practices into farther reaching tracts of the American continent. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. 
Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.